Booster shots will soon be available. Why now? One dose definitely is not enough for stopping Delta, so it, it clearly is a tougher virus to stop. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. What happens when there's a COVID case in the classroom? It's a little confusing. There's a lot of nuance around what types of exposure, symptoms, and even coronavirus test types. They all play a role into who has to quarantine and for long when a positive case appears in a classroom. We'll tell you what's standing between blue-collar jobs and women and Friendship Park turns 50 amid the push to see it fully open. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. Leading health officials announced this morning that the country has developed a plan to roll out coronavirus booster shots to all Americans beginning the week of September 20th. The plan is still subject to a recommendation from the CDC and is pending approval from the FDA. As of now, the guidance applies only to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Recipients of these vaccines are advised to receive their booster eight months after their second dose. Joining me with more is Dr. Shane Crotty, a professor at the La Jolla Institute of Immunology, who, along with his team at the Institute's Crotty Lab, studies immunity against infectious diseases. Dr. Crotty, welcome. Thanks for having me. Can you start off by telling us how the immunity provided by a vaccine can decrease over time? It's really about immune memory. So your immune system is basically programmed to recognize an infection or a vaccine, and then it creates memories of that exposure. And sometimes they're small memories that don't last very long, and sometimes they're memories that are lifelong. And usually that relates to uh, essentially a cost-benefit analysis by the immune system or a perception of the threat, not, not unlike real memories where, uh, you know, you, you might have trouble remembering what socks you uh, put on yesterday, but a car accident you were almost in, you know, a few years ago is a very memorable event. And vaccines are, are the same thing. And actually boosters feed into that. Most vaccines are three-dose vaccines because... If your immune system sees something once, it doesn't tend to worry about it too much. If it sees it twice, well, that means, well, okay, it thinks you managed to get infected twice. That's probably more worrisome. Um, And frequently with a vaccine with either two or three immunizations, then you manage to generate immune memory that lasts for years. So what prompted this uh, rollout and this uh, recommendation for booster shots? Overall, the COVID vaccines have been doing really incredibly well. And actually, they generate excellent immune responses. There was a new paper in Science last week showing that the antibody responses are really quite good for six months. We have the LJI data that we've made public. That's the first T-cell data on the vaccines. And there's good T-cells for six months. And the vaccines worked great in the clinical trials and great against alpha. And and I think what's, what's prompted the change is that definitely Delta is a lot tougher to stop. Uh, I mean, it's it's sort of almost a different virus in the way we have to think about it because it is just dramatically more transmissible. And so the more transmissible a virus is, the, the harder it is for your immune system to, to stop and at least prevent cases. 
So, Dr. Crotty, that in mind, how effective are the vaccines today that people received eight months ago compared to when they first got them? Essentially, it depends on the real world data is what is available. And and the problem with real world data is that there are all kinds of confounding factors. So we don't really know because there's you got vaccinated and unvaccinated people, but people who behave differently or different age groups and who have different testing practices. You know, I think what has been observed overall in the U.S. has been that the vaccines have been holding up really well so far. They just, you know, overall amongst hospitalizations, right, the percent of cases that are vaccinated is is really incredibly low. Um, it's still, it's very much been a pandemic of the unvaccinated and mostly the, the same thing with cases. On the immune system side, we can definitely make the measurements, right? So we can measure the antibodies at six months. We can measure the T cells, we can measure the different parts of the immune system at its six months compared to initially and say, okay, there is some drop. It's not a big drop. And so maybe people will get infected. Maybe that immunity is not enough to prevent infection, right? In everybody at six months. Um, but it should still be enough immunity to really be preventing the more severe outcomes, you know, the pneumonia and the hospitalizations. So, you know, as you mentioned before, immunity can decrease because the memory fades in our immune system over time. But how much do variants play a role in that? One way to think about it is that actually even one dose, right, of an RNA vaccine was quite good at stopping alpha. um, And one dose definitely is not enough for stopping delta. So it, it clearly is a tougher virus to stop. And then in terms of hospitalization. I think there's compelling evidence from at least three different studies in three different countries that Delta is about twice as virulent in terms of hospitalizations of unvaccinated people, indicating that, yeah, you may need more immunity to stop that virus. Are boosters at all fine-tuned to be more effective against variants? The Pfizer booster that was tested in clinical trial and one of the Moderna boosters were, I guess what I call the vanilla booster, getting the same as what the original vaccine was. And those worked really well, actually. And in the Moderna trial, they actually compared a variant-specific booster to a vanilla booster, and they were both pretty much equivalent, in part because the vanilla booster actually generated very good immune responses to variants that the immune system hadn't seen before. And that's because the immune system is really programmed to make guesses about what variants might occur. Um, and so we see that in the what are called the memory B cells and the antibody responses that, that you actually end up with. With each dose of vaccine, you end up with antibodies that can recognize more variants. And these boosters are for people who had the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Um, What about those people who took the J&J vaccine? Can they get a booster shot? So what the government has said is that there's no recommendation. So the CDC and in the report today, there's no official recommendation about boosters for J&J. And they're holding off until J&J two-dose clinical trial data are available perhaps in another month. How long would a booster shot provide additional immunity for? Our expectation is that vaccines that tend to give good memory after two doses tend to give even better memory after three doses. And so it's not unreasonable that a booster vaccine at six, eight, nine, ten, twelve 10, 12 months would result in immune memory that was good for several years um, after that. And it wouldn't be unreasonable for for it to be good for 10 years, um, just like a tetanus vaccine or a hepatitis B vaccine. But there's no guarantee. 
The World Health Organization is calling for a halt on COVID-19 vaccine boosters until at least the end of September uh, over issues of vaccine equity between rich and poor countries. If we don't collectively ensure all nations have access to the vaccine, then doesn't that just give this virus more opportunity to spread and develop into other variants? And if allowed to do that, uh, what does that ultimately mean for the efficacy of the vaccines we currently have? I think it's important to try and do both things. And, and I, I don't think there's actually a decision between the two in terms of vaccines that would actually be shipped out or vaccines that would just expire because they're being reserved here for unvaccinated people. But I certainly think every effort should be made to get vaccines into countries that don't have them. I've been speaking with Dr. Shane Crotty, a professor at the La Jolla Institute of Immunology. Dr. Crotty, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. In-person school is back in San Diego. Several districts are already open, and most will welcome kids back in the next few weeks. Unfortunately, the reopenings coincide with a new COVID surge as the Delta variant ramps up the number of new cases. Schools are hoping to avoid a roller coaster of openings and closings based on COVID exposure, so health officials have come up with a series of new protocols. Quarantine requirements are based on a complicated series of individual circumstances, which could make it easier for schoolrooms to stay open, but may leave students, parents, and teachers very confused. Joining me is Kayla Jimenez, reporter with The Voice of San Diego. And Kayla, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Now, this guidance is not just theoretical. There have already been students and staff in the county who've tested positive for COVID-19 in the first few days of the school year. Isn't that right? Yeah, it's really an interesting time for schools. This week is the first week of school for a few different districts. But in the South Bay, where schools are a few weeks into this new school year, officials at Chula Vista Elementary School had to send home students from four classrooms home due to positive coronavirus cases within a very short period of time. And that's been the case at quite a few districts now. Before these new guidelines were set up, did most schools do that? Did they just shut down whole classrooms when there are positive tests? Yeah, when schools returned to in-person learning last spring, and we saw that for a few districts, um, the state advised for closures of classrooms or schools if one student or teacher had tested positive and came into contact with other students. Um, And school leaders at that time had to notify parents of positive cases, and we saw that lead to major staffing challenges and closures, but it's a little bit different this year. So what are the new protocols hoping to allow schools to do differently when a student or a staff member tests positive? So those rules about complete closures are now gone, and quarantine protocols are based largely on the circumstances of individuals now. And it's a little confusing. There's a lot of nuance around what types of exposure, symptoms, and even 
coronavirus test types. They all play a role into who has to quarantine and for long when a positive case appears in a classroom. And timing is also inconsistent. One person could have to stay home for eight days and another could have to stay home for 11 before coming back to school. Could you walk us through some of these different outcomes based on varying sets of circumstances? So it is a little bit different depending on whether a student is vaccinated or not. And there are exceptions to the rules. For example, if a teacher's role requires them to be near students who are immunosuppressed, they have to quarantine for a longer amount of time. Or if a student is wearing a mask and exposed to another student who is wearing a mask in the classroom, there's a less chance that they'll have to quarantine. And it's different if they are in contact with an unmasked child on the playground. And how does vaccination status impact quarantine rules? Yes, so students who are vaccinated or have tested positive for COVID-19 within the last three months and recovered don't have to quarantine, even if they've been in contact with someone. And there's a lot of variants. I'm saying this as a blanket statement, but there's a lot of variants in cases too. Now, you spoke with one school health administrator who said the guidelines could change 10 minutes from now. What did she mean? And even my confusion here is something that she had referenced in saying that the San Diego County Office of Education has created this decision tree for school leaders to decide when to send kids home or not. And she said that her office has been updating this chart daily almost and getting questions in from school leaders and saying, what about this case? And then updating the chart and saying, well, in this circumstance, it could be different. So it's definitely a frustration on their minds and school leaders as they communicate to parents about what they should be doing for their kids and how long they should be keeping them home or not when that happens. In your story in Voice of San Diego, you've published diagrams of the COVID-19 decision trees the County Education Board has come up with. That's for K-12 through classrooms, and it really is something. It's quite complicated. Who is in charge of making sure these protocols are followed? Yeah, so like I said, county leaders at the San Diego County Office of Education are continually updating that chart and giving new guidance to school leaders based on state and county guidance. But the responsibility has largely been in the hands of school leaders, principals, teachers, board members, superintendents that have had to implement those rules and continually be communicating with parents and students about what the situation is at the time, which could be different tomorrow than it is today. And in the meantime, guidance on masks and social distancing have also gone through some changes. Where does that stand in schools right now? Right. So all schools are required to have students and teachers wear masks, and that's been implemented by the state. Um, As we've seen even today, the mask requirement has provoked pretty hostile debates between parents, school leaders, and the state. Um, Some districts have said that they're not going to require masks, and it's resulted in a lot of parent outcry. But the state's guidance is that everyone in schools wears masks. Despite these challenging new rules and regulations, does there seem to be a consensus that it is important for in-person classes to get going again this semester? Definitely. Um, Regardless of the situation, rising cases, different masks and vaccination requirements. Most school, county, and state leaders agree that kids do need to be back in school with their teachers and other students. And one of the officials that I talked to from the county office of education said that they are varying the rules of the quarantine guidance to make sure that students aren't missing school 
for as many days as possible. So if they only need to quarantine for five days, then they're doing that instead of doing the whole 14 days. And why is there such a consensus that it's so important for in-person classes to, to take place despite all the complications? I think we saw in the last year the impacts of students not being in class or around people have had both on education and mental health, physical health, that there's a pretty blanket understanding that kids need to be back in the classroom and teachers are along with that as well. Everyone wants to be back in school. And what would you say parents need to know as they get their kids ready for the new school year? Yeah, I think there's a lot. um, Something different maybe that the chart reflects the San Diego County Office of Education's chart in this case about when to keep students home and when to send them back to school is that parents really have more of a choice in the amount of time that they want to keep kids out of school or in school. And I know even I've been talking to a lot of parents this week that have said that as the Delta variant surges that they are deciding to keep kids home now and different schools are offering online programs like they did last year. So things are changing, but there, I believe, is more communication going on and they really should be holding their school years accountable and asking for that information. I've been speaking with Kayla Jimenez, a reporter with Voice of San Diego. Kayla, thank you so much. Thank you. Women make up only about 2% of skilled construction workers in California. We're talking jobs like plumbers, carpenters, electricians, and that 2% figure is actually less than it was a few decades ago. Why have women made so little progress getting good-paying blue-collar jobs? Well, from KPCC in Los Angeles, reporter Jill Repligol wanted to find out. The morning workout for six women hoping to break into construction looks uncomfortable. They're in jeans, long sleeve shirts, and work boots, doing squats while curling 30-pound cinder blocks. Here we go. One thousand, two. This pre-apprenticeship training program in East Los Angeles is put on by the nonprofit Winter. That stands for Women in Non-Traditional Employment Roles. It's one of just a few programs across the U.S. that specifically helps women prepare for construction apprenticeships. These apprenticeships can lead to good-paying union jobs. For example, some plumbers in Los Angeles finish their apprenticeship making nearly $49 an hour. The winter training is free, and it's intense. To get these women ready for a physically demanding job that's competitive and overwhelmingly dominated by men. Getting into an apprenticeship can be a long road and not necessarily a welcoming one for women. Retired electrician Meg Vasey knows firsthand. They insisted upon calling me Brother Vasey because it was the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, so there were no sisters. Vasey joined the union in 1981, and she says she was one of just eight women out of about a 1,000 men in her Northern California local. She now runs a training and advocacy organization called Tradeswomen, Inc. I was told all the time that I was taking a man's job and that I had no right to be there. When I walked into my job site and opened up the game box where all the tools were, there would be 
big hustler displays. Vasey thinks she never would have even gotten interviewed for the apprenticeship if it weren't for a federal directive that set goals for government building contractors to increase the number of women employees. The national goal was for women to work 6.9 percent of all hours worked on federal job sites. That's still the goal, but we've never even gotten close. Vasey says there are likely multiple reasons for this. I do think there's not enough women who know about this work. Vasey says there's also implicit bias among employers and Prop 209. That's the California initiative that voters passed in 1996 that prohibited affirmative action in public employment, contracting, and education. Vasey and others say, as it stands, getting into a skilled trade is almost like a family secret. Friends, brothers, and in-laws. Those are the men who get in as well on a regular basis into construction. Pre-apprenticeship programs like Winter provide a way around that, especially for women and people of color. The six women in this cohort range from 24 to 52 years old. There's a photographer whose work dried up during the pandemic, a host at an Outback Steakhouse. Diana Lantin is 31. She currently works as a server at a bar to pay the bills for her and her 11-year-old daughter. Lantin says she's always been a tinkerer. Me for my birthdays and like, especially like Christmas, people always laugh at me because when I have like my list of what I want, I'm like, tools. 33-year-old Janelle Herrera works as a project manager in telecommunications. And after being laid off twice in the last four years, she hopes a union job in construction will be more stable. I don't want to have to worry, how am I going to help my kids, you know? The ultimate goal is to land an apprenticeship and become a journeywoman. That comes with benefits and among the best salaries you can earn without a high school diploma. President Biden says he wants to strengthen the apprenticeship pipeline for women and people of color. And California has new funding through the 2017 gas tax aimed at getting more women into pre-apprenticeship programs like Winter. After decades of minimal progress getting women into the trades, Vasey, the former electrician, says she now sees more hope than she has in a long time. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more mcasd.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Friendship Park turns 50 years old today, but the binational park that's located at the U.S.-Mexico border fence will have to celebrate its big anniversary without being fully opened. A group of activists on both sides of the border is working hard to change that. In a special bonus episode of KPBS's border podcast, Port of Entry, producer Kinsey Moreland and host Alan Lilienthal tell us more about the park and the people who want it reopened. So back in June, Port of Entry producer Kinsey Moreland met up with John Fanistel. Oh, Kinsey, I didn't recognize you. Nice to see you. Yeah, the last time I saw you, you were out chasing me around out here. Thank you for thank you for coming out. I'm back here to chase you around. <laughs> Appreciate your being here. Thanks for thanks for turning. Longtime listeners of the show might recognize John's voice. He's the pastor behind Border Church, the outdoor service that meets up at the actual U.S.-Mexico border fence with members in both Tijuana and San Diego. Yeah, let me. Uh, yeah, by all means, have at it. Let me dump. Uh, 
So yeah, picture people on each side of the international border. Between the two sides are one 12-foot fence and a taller secondary fence. But they're all listening to the same bilingual church service through a sound system set up on the Tijuana side. And the backdrop is Playas, this beautiful beach at the southwesternmost point of the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm here at Friendship Park. Beautiful Sunday afternoon, the breeze is blowing. And the beach on the U.S. side is almost entirely vacant. It's the only stretch of undeveloped coastline in Southern California. It has a beauty all of its own. We did an entire episode on the Binational Church a few years ago. You can go back and check it out on our feed sometime. Anyway, we're bringing back John today because the pandemic has really disrupted Border Church. Just like it's disrupted so many things in this strange new normal we're all navigating. So when the pandemic hit, Friendship Park, the spot that's inside Borderfield State Park where Border Church is held, was closed down alongside everything else in our society. Uh, U.S. Border Patrol had given us every reason to believe that when the pandemic uh, came to an end uh, or was winding down, that once again people would be able to enter Friendship Park, the historic binational meeting place, would be able to visit with loved ones through the border wall. See, this little park, it isn't a normal park where people go to have a picnic or a casual stroll. This is the place along the U.S.-Mexico border where people separated by immigration status go to see each other in person, even if it's through a border fence. It's been an important meeting spot for binational families and friends for decades. And while sections of the park have been reopened, the part that's still closed is really the most important. It's called Friendship Circle, and it's the spot in between the two huge steel border fences. In pre-pandemic times, Border Patrol agents would open up a gate and let people walk into what's called Friendship Circle. In between those two fences, people on the U.S. side could see their friends and family in Mexico up close. They can even reach their fingers through tiny holes in the fence to touch each other in what's become known here as pinky kisses. Uh, as you can see, the California State Park and the surrounding area is open and people are arriving. Uh, I've met several families who are here today wishing to be able to visit with their loved ones in Mexico. Uh, U.S. Border Patrol has not opened the park. Federal property is still closed. John and lots of other folks who really care about Border Church and the park want Friendship Circle reopened ASAP. And after many failed attempts at talks with the San Diego sector of the U.S. Border Patrol to try to get them to do that, John and others eventually decided it was time for a good old-fashioned protest. I think most of you, otherwise I imagine you wouldn't be here, kind of get the larger purpose that we're fighting for. The message today is Open Friendship Park. So we're here to uh, march in silence and to represent the desire of people on both sides of the border to be able to meet at Friendship Park. Come on over here a little bit. We'll do a little bit of organizing and, and then we'll get ready to, uh, to march. The protest in June was also being held in part because the park has a big party to attend. 
On August 18th, 2021, Friendship Park officially turns 50. A little later, I'm hoping to go right across and shake hands with uh, the friends who are on the other side of the fence. And I hope there won't be a fence too long here. It was 50 years ago uh, in August of 1971 that First Lady Pat Nixon inaugurated the surrounding area as California State Park. And many of you have seen that video. I know all of you will enjoy the surfing, swimming, visiting our neighbors to the south. I'm going to come down here and go surfing one day. I've never done it yet, but I'm going to try it. <laughs> she asked her security detail to cut the barbed wire so she could greet the people in Mexico. This is a sitting First Lady of the United States, right? A Republican sitting First Lady of the United States. So, uh, and she said this is the first stage of International Friendship Park. I hope we'll do as well on our border, as on our side of the border as they've done on theirs. I mean, this is the, the plan, right? The plan was clear, it was, it was, it was very uh, transparent. And our view is that this should be a bi-national park. And I know you're going to have many happy times here, especially after we do as well with our beach as our friends to the south have done, planting trees and flowers and making it an attractive beachland for all. Here's Port of Entry producer Kinsey Moreland. So John Fanistel is an easy dude to spot. Typically, he is one of the tallest guys in a crowd. Plus, he's got a penchant for wearing a huge straw sun hat. No rush, but when, when it, what I'm going to do is we're going to get organized, and then we'll break into two groups, those who want to drive in and those who want to walk in. Okay. If at that time you were On a Sunday morning back in June, a crowd of a few dozen people circled around John in a dirt parking lot outside the entrance to Borderfield State Park. That's the California state park that butts right up against the U.S.-Mexico border fence. And John is doing his thing. He's greeting folks, making them feel comfortable, and then immediately getting down to business. Thanks so much for coming out. Really appreciate your being here. Bienvenidos a todos. Vamos en inglés o en los dos? Algunos prefieren español? O todos estamos contentos hablar en inglés? In Arabic. We'll go in English, and if you have questions, please don't hesitate to ask. All kinds of people were there in that dusty parking lot that day. Activists, professors, church folks, even a few families with young kids in strollers, and a gentleman who just celebrated his 80th birthday. Let me give you a white shirt. Yeah, give me a shirt, please. Everyone there was wearing white because they were asked to, partly to symbolize peace and partly to just make themselves stand out. Yeah, it's a white shirt. So don't rub too much ketchup on me. <laughs> so California's Borderfield State Park is, of course, run by state park people. But because the international border is right here, there's federal property in the park, too. The federal government actually took some of the land from the state of California by eminent domain back in 2006. And things have changed a lot since then. I actually have a picture of myself with my then-boyfriend, now-husband, on the Mexican side of Friendship Park back in 2008. We were sort of poking our heads through the huge gaps in the single fence that stood on the beach back then. I remember a bunch of kids there that day, running through the wide slots in the border fence that literally dips and then disappears into the Pacific Ocean. The kids were laughing as they casually crossed back and forth between the U.S. and Mexico. 
Families were there that day too, having reunions through the fence. It's a common scene here since there are all kinds of reasons people in Mexico can't cross north to see their families or vice versa. But in the years that followed, the federal government just completely transformed Friendship Park. They built a 15-foot secondary wall, a watchtower, and added lots of other security measures. So now what was once this pretty open and accessible state park is a militarized zone controlled by the U.S. Border Patrol. So when you get out there, if you first time you see these big double walls those have only been there 12 or 13 years that's not the way it was designed that's not what it's supposed to look like that's just the the lay of the land at the moment so after the park was transformed into this militarized zone john and a coalition of border activists who came to be known as the friends of friendship park started working to get the land to look and feel a lot well friendlier again and because of their activism Border Patrol did eventually agree to opening a gate and letting people inside the two border fences. Specifically, they said they'd open the gate every Saturday and Sunday from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. That allows people from the United States to enter in between the walls, get up against the primary wall, which is the wall covered with that thick metal mesh, and that's where where people are able to meet up with friends and loved ones. We know because Border Patrol counted one year uh, 2,300 family reunions, about 40 or 50 a weekend. If there were greater access, that number would explode. Okay, so I want to take a few minutes to tell you a little bit about those thousands of people who use this place to meet up. There is a common misunderstanding that most of them are undocumented. But that is simply not the case. I would venture to say 95 or higher uh, percent of the folks who come visiting on the U.S. side are not undocumented. We get a lot of inquiries from people who are undocumented. We tell them, you know, es mucho riesgo. There's a great risk because the place is, you know, surrounded by Border Patrol. It's one of the most heavily surveilled parts of the country. So the vast, vast majority of people who come to visit with their family on the U.S. side are not undocumented, but they have some status in the United States but they have a status in the United States that prevents them from leaving the country. Statuses that prevent folks from leaving the country include things like DACA or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. DACA recipients are the folks brought over as kids who've been allowed to stay and work in the U.S. but haven't been given full citizenship rights. Another status that prevents international travel is those who have immigration cases pending in courts, Or sometimes it's folks who have a green card or a visa or even full citizenship, but maybe they're on parole and not allowed to leave the country for a while. There are just a lot of people who have legal residence in the United States, and if their family members in Mexico can't get a visa to come to the U.S., then Friendship Park becomes the only place in the world that they can see their loved ones. Hi, my name is Lene. So um, about... Close to 11 years ago, my younger sister was deported. And this is the only place that I can come and uh, get to see her. Selene Gutierrez was one of a handful of people who got up to talk to the crowd of protesters before the hike out to Friendship Park began that day back in June. And um, so it's very important to me and very special that you guys are all here. Um, I'm a DACA recipient myself. 
and um, this is the only way that um, I can see my sister, her now husband, and uh, my my new nephew. So um, it's very important to me to be here and represent not only myself but a large community of people that get to be with their family members even for a few hours in this area. So thank you so much, and I really appreciate it. Will you join me with the So the hike out to Friendship Park from the entrance of Borderfield State Park is about 1.8 miles. I use the long walk to run back and forth between the front and the back of the line of hikers, talking to folks about why they were there. We're, we're going out to protest Border Patrol's continued closure of Friendship Park. This is Jim Brown. He's an architect in San Diego who's actually been part of the Friends of Friendship Park Coalition for years. He's also the guy behind a proposed new design for Friendship Park. The park design and plan was just released to the public by the Friends of Friendship Park group this week. And uh, it will be an 80-acre park. Our belief is that the best security that we can have between na uh, nations is friendship. And a binational park built on this site right now would remind the ordinary citizens of the United States and Mexico that indeed we are friends, because there's so much rhetoric in the print media and on, in the internet that, you know, the ordinary person starts to wonder, and we all know that's not true. So Jim has been designing different possible iterations of the park since way back in 2009. He knows the latest redesign, which would remove both the border fences at Friendship Park and essentially open the border here, is a real long shot, at least in the short term. But he says he feels like the idea is a good first step, like an important start of something, something he probably won't actually see built in his own lifetime, but maybe something his daughter could. A lot of people ask me, like, how are you going to raise the money? Like, how are you going to get the approvals? That's not what we're doing. We're creating a vision that hopefully enough people will see locally, enough people, will, enough local politicians will notice and you know, mention up the chain. It's, this, this is a decision that needs to be made in Washington, of course. Speaking of Washington and the federal government, I did reach out to the U.S. Border Patrol on this 50th anniversary of the park. And a spokesman for the San Diego sector gave me a written statement about why Friendship Circle is still closed. In part, it said, quote, a large portion of our workforce has been allocated to the care and processing of the influx of undocumented migrants that are entering our country illegally. That influx, he said, has left Border Patrol with not enough agents to be on site to open the gates to Friendship Circle. Jim, though, he does not buy it. We've had a lot of negotiations with Border Patrol over the years, enough to know that um, with, an, with enough people like today, we see here 40 to 50 some odd people and more growing every day, they're going to open up Friendship Park and they're going to do it soon. Their excuse of not having the manpower is complete nonsense. They have the money, they have the manpower. We just got to point that out to them and make them do it, live up to their responsibilities. They, they use everything under the sun as an excuse. Uh, you know, we, we, we have been negotiating with them in good faith for all these years, for over 10 years. And, well, we're not going let, to let them get away with it. This is too important of a meeting place. It needs to be open immediately. Thank you.
So the protesters and I hiked on, and I kept asking people about why they were out spending their Sunday morning protesting to reopen Friendship Circle. Can I ask you who you are and why you're here today? Maggie Baker, and I care about this region. I care about people who can't see each other. And um, yeah, I have a history here. I have like a love affair with the border region. I'm Penny Moreau. This is my husband, Mike. Mike. Hi. Hi. We really support the effort to open Friendship Park. We've been part of this vision for many, many years. Hi, I'm Cristela Garcia-Spitz, and I'm here to represent those that can't be here. It's had a big impact on me just to see the types of um, reunions that get to happen, the types of celebrations that get to happen in the park. My name is Rachel Myers, and I'm here to support the opening of the park because it is so important for families and friends to be able to see one another. Throughout the pandemic, my daughter's been in Canada and we've been unable to cross the border. It's the longest I've been without seeing her, which definitely gives me a lot even more empathy for folks here. My name is Taha Hassan. I'm the Imam and Director of the Islamic Center of San Diego. I'm here standing in solidarity with all my fellow faith leaders, brothers and sisters, to demand the opening of the Friendship Park. We are, and our faith teaches us about the importance of the unity of the families, bringing people together. What's going on now is totally the opposite. We would like to uh, the Friendship Park to be open, and to allow families from both sides to come together, see each other, and share that love. So we're right, just got to the beach. We're looking south. At the end of the nearly two-mile hike, the narrow path suddenly opened to the stunning view of a pristine, empty beach. We're still about a mile and a quarter from the border wall, and a beautiful day. So it's just beautiful. I mean, beautiful, beautiful. The group of protesters then prepared to march in silence in a single-file line that would head south on the beach toward the border fence. And our friends on the Mexican side are getting themselves organized. They'll be marching north at the same time we're going to try to synchronize as much as we can synchronizing things in the united states of mexico is what i would call a high degree of difficulty kind of act and so we should be ready in about 15 minutes to begin the procession does that sound good okay and i will ping you on the whatsapp group okay the protesters marched quietly through the sand And at the end of the march, just a few yards from the secondary border fence, a photographer snapped a photo of each protester. The photos are part of the Friends of Friendship Park's ongoing effort to document everything significant that happens at the park. And no one said anything. So for about 15 minutes or so, the only sound on that beach was the waves crashing against the shore. Eventually, the silence was broken by loud cheers from protesters on both sides of the border.
Robert, can you hear me through the sound system? After the march, John and his counterpart, Robert Vivar, who was running the action on the Mexican side of the border fence, they didn't waste any time in getting the day's border church service up and running. So we've set up communion on both sides of the border. We've been doing this since every Sunday since November of 2011. So this is uh, my kids' grape juice here. A couple of tortillas. And uh, when they are blessed, we'll count them as gifts from God. And our friends on the Mexican side are doing the same. With tortillas and grape juice? Ah, uh, <laughs> they might have something a little more tasty. And they're and they're eating a meal afterwards. A hundred yes. people are getting fed over there. So someday we hope to join that meal. So yeah, we kind of say we're trying to turn the turn the wall into the table of the Lord in some mysterious way, gathering around a table. That's what we're doing. Come on closer, folks. If you'd like to just, uh, we'll start in with the. And that was Border Church Pastor John Finesti talking with Port of Entry producer Kinsey Moreland. The Friends of Friendship Park are celebrating the anniversary of the park through art exhibitions in La Jolla and Barrio Logan, concerts, and a big celebration with Mayor Todd Gloria and other community leaders from both sides of the border at the park on Saturday. For the full schedule of events, check out friendshippark50.org. And to hear the second half of the Port of Entry episode about the park, find and follow Port of Entry online at portofentrypod.org or find it wherever you listen to podcasts. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.